In this episode, I'm once again joined by Michael Taft, meditation teacher, author, and host of the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. In this episode, Michael reveals why he dislikes maps of meditation and why he believes the progress of insight, a widely taught meditation map in Theravada Buddhism, causes more problems than it solves. Michael also discusses his points of agreement and disagreement with the Buddhist four-path model, how he defines and teaches stream entry, the common traps on the way to enlightenment, how to cut through spiritual ego, and why Michael questions if arhatship is actually good for anybody. Michael goes on to explain his own meditation map based on the teachings of Shinzen Yang and shares his takes on emptiness, jhana, fire casino, and how life changes after awakening. So without further ado, Michael Taft. Michael Taft, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. I'm so delighted to be talking with you again, Michael. In our previous conversation, we went through in quite some detail, actually, your biography. In particular, I suppose we could say your meditational biography or your spiritual biography or your um, hagiography or your namtar. Jesus Christ. No, <laughs> yes, none of those. <laughs> but of course, there's more to your life than just meditation. But we, we covered that that as was our main thrust. That's what I'm getting at here. Yes. And um, so I'm very pleased to talk to you again. It's great to be here, ma'am. I'm happy to be back. On. We were just talking before uh, we started recording that. Uh, the thing I'd like to ask you a lot about this time is maps, meditation maps. You've actually iterated your own map which you call the stages of deconstructing sensory experience, a four-stage map. It used to have five stages. May the fifth stage, rest in peace, uh, we'll, or rest in cessation, maybe. We'll talk about it. <laughs> um, that's a spoiler, uh, a sort of a spoiler hint, I suppose. You run that map two directions. You, you run it forward and back uh, for different effects. Uh, we'll get into that. Why are you doing that? And I think it's very interesting indeed to run a map backwards. So I'd like to ask you a bit about that. But first of all, I'd like to... Uh, ask you about maps in general. You've described yourself as characterologically opposed to meditation maps, yes. and you said you don't really like maps. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about your relationship to maps in that sense, and maybe if you have any uh, comments on maps in general. Then I'd like to ask you about a couple of specific maps. Wonderful. So basically, um, maps are necessary, useful, helpful, etc. But people, including me, get stuck on them, right? You start to think the map is the territory, you start to think that the map is how it has to be. And so that's my opposition to them. And seems like a, you know, pretty simple point. But um, no matter how much, uh, in my experience, no matter how much people say they understand that they'll end up trying to fit their experience to the map rather than the other way around, you know, and so that's the, that's, it's a simple issue. It's like, hey, uh, human experience is quite a bit more varied and quite a bit more interesting and complex and rich than these hyper-reductive, super-simplified maps would suggest. And working with lots and lots of people, they're always trying to jam their really, you know, their effulgent, uh, rich, gorgeous, uh, uh, human experience into some rigid little map container. And it's it's just sad, like we don't need to do that. The maps are there to help, not to somehow um, overfit our experience too. So that's it, it's a simple idea. And you yourself have expressed a sort of personal distaste for maps that comes more, more from your personality uh, rather than- uh, Yeah, I mean, 
No, no one likes to be told what to do. <laughs> Some people do, it seems. Um, maybe, but yeah, it's uh, it's just funny. So you know, um, I would love it if um, the maps were more accurate or or richer or more detailed or whatever. But then they tend to lose their uh, effectiveness since you know they're the whole point is to simplify. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I I don't uh, I, I seem to be often off any map. And so as part of my experience, it's like, oh, these, these things don't seem to, to fit very well to my experience. Some of them do a little bit, you know. Hmm. I'm wondering if, you know, we, we talked last time about biography. Um, we, we covered a lot of biography last time. So that aspect I find always very interesting because it contextualizes um, yes. the theory uh, in, in a way that I, I at least find, find very interesting. Um, hence the biographical questions. Um, have you yourself ever found, you mentioned, you hinted there, I thought I heard you hint that you might have got stuck on a map at some point, or you've you've had, had times. Oh, lots of, of probably that. every day, you know, probably every day I'll get stuck on a map of something until I remember, you know, um, hey, it's just a map, and then, and then release back into, you know, a little more nebulosity. Um, and so it's a, a, it's not just meditation maps, it's maps of everything, right? We like that, it, they help us to understand, they help us to guide ourselves and all that. And yet, immediately it's reified, immediately we get stuck on it, immediately we try to fit our experience to it. And especially with things like our own internal experience, which are super, super nebulous, and really, really up for various kinds of interpretation, when we, the map starts to, to define the territory, and that's, um, that's a problem telling you what you're supposed to experience and it's your experience starts to go towards the script right and so that's that's what happens when we have uh when we try to fit very very nebulous experience into a map <clears throat> one of the maps that that criticism is leveled at of course it's a criticism that can be leveled at all maps um but it's one that's it's often one often hears that criticism leveled at is the progressive insight map which uh, has, I think, had a resurgence in popularity in, uh, so we say, um, pragmatic Dharma circles. I, yes. I say resurgence because, of course, it's it's a it's um, a map, perennial map. map. Yeah, it's an old map, but it's definitely come into fashion. I'd say uh, lately, in the last uh, some some fifteen twenty years, maybe maybe longer. You've said that the progressive insight map causes as many problems as it solves, and that in terms of pros and cons. Of that map in specific, you've said that you're on the con side, um, but you've also said you'd like to talk about that. So I'm I'm very curious what you think of the progress of Insight Map. I, I might ask some more questions after that, but what's your feeling on the progress of Insight Map? Um, well, I think it causes more problems than it solves. Um, this map is a map that is intended for as much to program your experience as to describe what's going to happen. Um, certainly the basics of it are of course uh, reasonable, like uh, uh, after a big A&P experience, having a come down uh, into you know, some kind of more flattened, let's say after a manic experience come down, coming down into a more depressed experience is just predictable. So that up and down overall gigantic arc Sure, that's reasonable. Uh, where I start to get, uh, uh, where I start to feel that it really goes astray and starts programming experiences, just this, you know, the the 
dark night stages that you must particularly feel disgust that you must particularly feel these you know negative emotions one at a time in that sequence um that's ridiculous that's not what happens uh, it only happens i'll give you an example of when it happens is if you are really convinced that the progress of insight map is true and then you start trying to notice just those features out of all the emotions you're having that's what i mean by nebulous experience for example you're having a bunch of emotions but now you're like oh it's time to feel the disgust because that's i'm at that stage in the progress of insight so you start trying to find it of course you'll find it but this you know and if you don't find it what will a progress of insight based teacher tell you well it happened but it happened so fast you didn't notice it or you just plain didn't notice it but it was there so that to me is you know that's where it's like really come on this is just like epicycles or something you know you're you're inventing um experiences that didn't happen just to fit the map so that's that's just silly in my in my opinion however i you know know lots of people really smart really interesting really fun good teachers who believe it is the 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 holy bible of truth about meditation so i recognize that you know um they're will they're able to use it that way but my when i sit in and listen to them using it they're often doing the thing of like oh you didn't miss that stage you uh, it was there you just didn't notice it stuff like that i'm like yeah no <laughs> i don't that doesn't fly for me how do you think the progress of insight map came to be so uh popular at this present time Oh, because of uh, my good friend Daniel Ingram, right? I mean, that that is the book, and that's Daniel's opinion, right? That the progress of insight map is sort of uh, unsurpassed as perfectly correct, an absolutely correct map. And I just disagree. But like I, you know, uh, Daniel is one of the people I was describing. Very smart, super cool. I love Daniel. So I'm just like, well, we just disagree about that, and that's okay. <laughs> but you know. Um, um, MCTB is just full of BOI. So there we go. Yep. Just throwing some jargon at you. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious then, of course, progress of insight map, uh, especially if we're, if we're talking about um, the version of it or the explanation of it or the interpretation of it that Daniel Ingram has popularized, previous guest on both of our podcasts uh, on many occasions. Um, what, what naturally follows, of course, is the so-called four-path model. The idea that there are these four watershed stages on the way to uh, awakening or on the path of awakening or whatever we might, we well, might call we, it. We would specifically have to call it the path to our hardship, right? Since that's what the four right. paths are. Yeah. Right. So there are these four paths. Stream entry, of course, is the first um, Cub Scout badge. But then after that... <laughs> non-return and they never return and then indeed as you say arhat and um i think many listeners will viewers will be aware that daniel caused quite controversy when he published that book mastering the core teachings of the buddha because he signed it as the arhat daniel ingram um so he's, that, he's, i think he signed it arahant which is an alternative spelling right yeah yeah which is quite um, a break with convention 
at least uh, of, of of this current day to name one's attainment like that uh, uh, very it caused quite a stir and that was Jeez. part of what he intended to do was to say hey let's take this out of the shadows let's talk about what we're really doing here and where we're getting that was that was his view and he, he talked about that on both of our podcasts so i'm curious what you think then uh, of the four path model um i haven't met anyone who fulfills the conditions of the model as stated um so even Daniel, even Kenneth Folk, another person who is in the pragmatic dharma and is considered to be an arhat, um, don't themselves admit they don't fulfill the conditions that are, you know, put forth in that model, like the idea that you're never going to have another angry thought for the rest of your life, or you'll never crave anything or never dislike anything. Um, and so part of the controversies there is they're redefining what that fourth path is supposed to mean. And I agree with them. <laughs> like the, the way it's defined, um, uh, at least to me, to, you know, with my uh, dim lights, uh, it doesn't not only seem possible, but even if it were possible, it does not seem desirable, like a thing you should want to, to just like, be that stone cold. Um, and so part of the controversy for uh, Daniel is that you're not supposed to call yourself an arhat. Um, but the other, the bigger point is that he redefined what it meant. Uh, that's the pragmatic part, right, of pragmatic dharma. And so I actually agree with that part. <laughs> like, let's, um, and, and, and again, I'm open to being wrong there, but it's just um, uh, a more, uh, all-encompassing definition that I think is more positive than the, the the classic definition. I'd rather hang out with an arhat like Daniel and Kenneth uh, any day, you know, than someone who feels, you know, that uh, uh, only these positive emotions and never a negative thought. Never. There's something almost um, to me that I, I just don't see the benefit there. I'm curious about stream entry. Um, is that something that you work with in your own practice and in your own, when you're coaching others, teaching others? Is that something you work with? I expect people come to you saying, I wish to obtain stream entry, or I believe I have obtained stream entry. Um, is that something you, you work with explicitly, uh, either personally or indeed with your, with your students? Uh, absolutely, yeah. If someone says they want to work in that direction, great, we can work in that direction. I understand how to teach that. And um, uh, I think that's a, a totally, perfectly worthy goal. Um, and in fact, even second path, per per perfectly achievable, worthy goal. After that, I think we start to part, I start to part ways with the four path model. How are you defining in that case, stream entry and second path? I'd be really curious about your particular um, definition of that or, or working model of that. Um, stream entry is the easy one in terms of defining it, you know, and it's the one, it's something you can see happen for people pretty clearly. And, you know, um, I will use not the classic definition, I will use Shinzen's definition, since he's uh, my main teacher. And also, he's good friends with uh, Bill Hamilton, who is, of course, Daniel and Kenneth's teacher. Um, so the uh, the idea is that you recognize that there's no object or thing inside you called a self. 
boom, it does tend to come a deeper experience of that or a richer experience that comes with some of the bells and whistles that the classic definition says should be there. I think those are pretty reasonable. Uh, you uh, have either gone totally uh, gotten rid of or you, or you have a greatly reduced sphere of death. The purpose of rites and rituals um, is, I'll say, is greatly redefined, like why you might want to do such a thing. And um, uh, the last one is supposed to be that you recognize that Buddhism is true. And I, I would, again, kind of work with that to say you recognize that this way of working works, even though maybe not every tenant of Buddhist belief is true. Um, but yeah, you can see that happen for people and, and either uh, either in a really classic like one sit moment it happens or in a, um, you know, sometimes it's kind of a slow progression into it. But, you know, that one's reasonable. I think that if we if we uh, if we use if we look at the term stream entry, you know, it's a very um, important and beautiful religious term about joining the stream of, um, you know, the, uh, the arhats, right? You're joining the stream of the, uh, of the noble ones, not the arhats, the, the uh, noble ones, right? You're getting into the Buddhist track. And so <clears throat> um, I don't necessarily think it does that for you, you know, mystically join you with this a particular tradition. It can. Um, and so even though people use the stream entry word, and I'm happy to use that, I don't necessarily think of it in exactly that way, even though I think that's a beautiful way to think. If you see, if you see what I'm saying, yeah. you know, the idea is stream entry means you are now, you know, a card-carrying Buddhist forever because you, you've kind of joined the wisdom stream of Buddhism. Um, and I'm not sure it means that in my experience for everyone. When people come to you saying something like, I'd like to attain stream entry or, uh, yeah, let's just say that, for example, what is it that they're asking? I expect people saying that some of them will be talking about something rather different or they're looking for something that they've labeled stream entry or, or stream entry is occupying the place of what they're looking for. Um, oh, sometimes yeah. probing a little deeply and say, well, what do you mean? What do you want? Or what, uh, why do you meditate? Very often the reasons that are revealed don't have a great deal in common with stream entry by any definition. Um, it seems uh, I've, I've noticed that to be the case, but I'm wondering if, if you have and when someone comes to you saying, I'd like to attain stream entry, Michael, well, how, do you, how do you work with them in that context? Well, uh, I would agree with you and say that it's very rare that they want what stream entry actually gives you. And in fact, if you tell them what it gives you, they, and often they don't want that or don't know why they should want that. Um, much more often, um, it's basically uh, a kind of deep psychological relief, you know, um, that is, uh, that is being, you know, that they really deeply want, or, um, um, well, I'll just say that's the main thing they want. And then if you're asking on top of that, how do I, uh, how do I work with them? Was that the second part of the question? I'll just keep asking, like you suggest, I keep asking probing questions to see what they really want. 
out of their meditation. And again, I'm not religious. Uh, I don't think they need to want stream entry. I mean, I think it would be awesome if they want that and we can go for that. Of course, I love teaching that. But if they want something that is more like a, a psychological goal of just sort of relief or whatever through their meditation, I think that's totally legitimate and we'll work on that. I don't get to tell them what to want. Perhaps you could say something about the second path and why it is that you begin to diverge from that model by path three. Um, I'll just talk about the path three part, which is, you know, the that's where we start to see the real um, definition of the path as just like um, a lot of your human qualities are supposed to just be gone. And that's what that's where I, um, even though I understand where they're coming from and why they say that and so on, that's fitting you into a certain model. And I don't think those qualities have to be gone in order for someone to be liberated. Um, and, and furthermore, as I was saying earlier, I feel like, um, uh, in fact, I wouldn't want to be liberated if it cost that. You know, if, if, if I had to strip away that much of, of humanity, uh, of my humanity. So I think that there is, um, there's a divergence there into what is, what is like, uh, you know, early Buddhism is transcendental, right? The, the world is a very negative, dark, horrible place only, and we're trying to get out of ever being reborn in and again. And our path, again, if we're talking about really core Theravadan practice, our path is to completely reject the world, completely reject relationships, completely reject any kind of meaningful work, uh, go on the road and beg for a living and try to get out of the hellhole called earth and by basically kind of shutting down our uh, everything else that most people don't teach it that way these days because that's not a popular message but that is what is in the text uh, in the texts and, and that's where that kind of practice goes and that's where third path and fourth path are really leading you like just shut off the world and go transcendental um, and so to me, that's not interesting. I'm sure you can do that. I'm positive they're not lying about it or whatever. Great, go do that. But um, I'm not sure uh, that that's, I don't know. I'm definitely sure that's not for me. And I'm not sure it's actually good for anybody. There's a, there's a real difference between transcendental spiritual practice and spiritual practice that is like two-stage transcendental first, and then after that imminent coming back into the world, coming back into our emotions, coming back into our regular mind, coming back into sexual relations, coming back into having meaningful work, coming back into the world with our awakened mind or even our liberated mind. Um, that's interesting to me. And that's beyond this idea of just uh, this kind of like disappearance out of the hell of samsara. When one comes back from the mountain, to, to use that sort of um, ox herding picture kind of uh, imagery that you're evoking there, re-engaging, as you say, with work, relationships, and so on. What's the difference other than uh, a change to the meditator's um, affective experience? In other words, 
presumably something's changed after all that. Um, what, how, how does the person who's coming back down the mountain experience those same mundane things? Is it different? And if so, how? Um, it's entirely different, uh, but it's going to take a while to explain how, and that's where the map actually helps. Uh, <laughs> but basically, I mean, to put it uh, briefly, um, uh, the average person, I'm just going to talk about kind of in general, because everybody's different, but most people, default human is going to be very fixated on uh, everyday experience, and it's going to be highly reified. Um, and so that first transcendental move of seeing, you know, pulling out of experience and seeing how it's um, arising in awareness, and then al almost seeing awareness as a separate thing from the arising as form, not totally, but you know, it's, we start to pull away. That's when we get into, that's the wisdom of emptiness, right? We're seeing the emptiness of everything. So we're pulling out of our fixation on form. And if you stop there, I pulled out of my fixation on form. That's, um, that's for example, Theravada practice, right? You're going into cessations there, you're, you're fully, um, realizing the truth of emptiness, although they wouldn't call it that. Um, and then that's it, you're done. Emptiness is the only truth or awareness is the only thing in the world, just you've left it. Boom, now you sit and do your practice in emptiness and that's it. But you see how the whole, the whole um, path there is pulling away from our fixation on form. But, once we've seen the truth of emptiness, there's a whole second stage that can happen, which is we start recognizing that all the form is still there and isn't actually somehow damaging the emptiness at all. It isn't somehow um, uh, sullying or nullifying or confusing the emptiness at all. And in fact, as we go deeper and deeper, we recognize that the form was never different in any way than the emptiness. Those two things always arose together. And that's, uh, we went from being fixated with form into a kind of real, uh, you know, this is paradoxical, but a real duality between form and emptiness. Um, and then when we come down from the mountain in your terms, we're recognizing that that emptiness it was never separate from the form and the form does not somehow sully it in any way. But furthermore, that the form is a perfect expression of the emptiness in every moment, right? And so that's a very different experience of, let's say, um, uh, arguing with your friend when you get kind of heated and, you know, there's some, there's some juice in it, there's some skin, there's when the core of that is empty and the whole experience is arising as a display, uh, a, a, a fabulous display, an effulgent display and emptiness, it's pretty different than when you're all fixated with, with a real reified sense of self and a real reified sense of the other and the ideas are, you know, um, there's 
freedom in this coming back, deep, deep, deep experience of freedom, deep experience of um, love and connection, deep experience of uh, the kind of um, uh, spontaneous, playful arising of it all. So it's quite a bit different. The one is all tight and fixated and fraught. And on the other side, it is um, the opposite. It's playful, spontaneous, even when it gets intense. Maybe even especially when it gets intense. It's not that over here, everything's just like, as I'm always saying, like Teletubbies on ecstasy, like, oh, uh, which is the common image, right? That everyone's just going to be nice. Um, that's not it. It's like we can be intense, we can be angry, we can have fun, we can um, get sad, and all of that is still this perfect expression. Um, the Cautopavonis, you know, like this peacock's tail or rainbow-like um, expression of, of emptiness, and the two always go together. So that's, that's you know, um, that's what that's like. Does that have a stress tolerance? Uh, by that I mean, is it the case that a certain amount of stress would obscure that perspective, that post-mountain perspective, or perhaps even cause a regression temporarily to the to the older way of operating? Oh, or absolutely. That's just that's the definition of how how deep your liberation is. You know, like. The deeper it is, the the it takes a lot, lot, lot more stress to um, cause that to happen and and uh, to to actually recongeal everything. Um, or we could say, I mean, we can go even deeper and say, if someone's liberated enough, it even if it recongeals, it's just that's still a perfect expression of emptiness, and they're still fine. And I have met people like that. That is possible. And they seem to me, or let me put it this way, I'd, I'd rather emulate them than, than a sort of classic arhat. Perhaps one, one more question on this, this theme. I mean, I'm just, this is just, I'm just defining the classic difference between a Madhyamaka philosophy and, and early Buddhism. I mean, this is not, uh, you know, new material. Well, the, the classic, a classic difference between, yeah, well, that would be a low grain way of describing it. Of course, you know, there's many, there's many, there's many. <laughs> I just don't want to take credit for these ideas. That's no, no, I see what you're trying to say. Yes, of course, there's many Madhyamakas and very, 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 many early Buddhisms. Well, I'm asking you in the context of your, yeah, you sure, know, your sure. working perspective is what I'm asking you here. Yes. Um, I, I hope that's and I'm giving you that for sure. Yeah, yeah. So on on that basis, you know, you you've worked with a lot of people. You've had, as we learned in the last episode, tremendous. Um, uh, career as a contemplative anyway, as a practitioner, and you've also worked with many people. And uh, it's from that basis that I'm asking these, these questions, you know, your working kind of working model on these things. Um, you're, you're busting my attempt to be humble there, Steve. So cut yeah. it off. <laughs> <laughs> what, in your view, and, and this is very much grounded in in uh, your view, personally as a practitioner, and also with people you you, you work with, um, are the dangers of, should we say, stream entry, awakening these sort these sorts of things? I'm thinking of dangers. Of course, we hear of, from Willoughby Britain all the sorts of things that can go wrong in the meditational path. 
uh, Cheetah House re reporting people having these, um, you know, very often actually um, triggering manic episodes or triggering psychotic episodes, especially uh, w when uh, hardcore meditation is combined with sleep deprivation, which is a favorite, um, a favorite activity in, in meditation retreats, can often cause mental health problems or trigger them or exacerbate previous ones. We hear about that. We also hear about people who perhaps have a genuine experience of um, stream entry, as you've described it, perhaps, or, you know, if such a thing exists, they have, they have it, and um, settle on it in a way that's unhelpful, and yeah. um, re-identify, in a sense, with the post-awakened self, in a way, in, in an unhelpful way. I'm curious, um, what are the sorts of issues you see with people who are attempting to go for stream entry or these such things, or have indeed achieved such a threshold? Um, the main thing is, uh, the kind of real manic state stuff that can sometimes arise. Um, in my opinion, it's not that hard to avoid. Uh, if you're checking in with a teacher who's really good at watching what's going on with you, it's pretty straightforward to notice that someone's getting in that place. And of course, as you get more manic, you start losing more sleep and it kind of it starts to feed on itself, but that's got a very particular emotional tone. It's got a way of talking. It's got some uh, uh, very distinct qualities or you know markers that that you can see where someone's starting to go off track. And so, by checking in a lot with, in my opinion, you know, a teacher who knows how to work with that, they're going to be able to either mitigate or or completely uh, help you avoid that experience. Um, uh, I just don't think it's that hard to, to um, help people not go there as long as they're really, really checking in and doing what you're saying. Uh, one of the problems when, uh, that can occur is when someone starts going into that manic zone and they're getting more revved up and they start to really get... Uh, a kind of a vision of where they're going and is very compelling is that they stop listening to the teacher uh, also. You know, like you're telling them to slow down. You're telling, no, it's not a good time to go on a long retreat, that kind of thing, but they they refuse to listen. Now I know uh, that um, that doesn't describe everyone's experience. A lot of people went on just a regular retreat and did what the teacher told them and so on. Um, but in at least in my teaching experience, it's been the case that it's it's uh, um, if they stop listening and start just doing what they want to do in as intensely as they want to do it, then they might get into trouble. Um, and so I can't really comment intelligently on uh, people who just have a manic episode out of nowhere because I haven't seen that. Um, in fact, what I have seen is people who go to a retreat and they're, they're not being checked in with enough and the, the, pe the people who they check in with give them this kind of very um, generic advice and then they start to get into trouble. Um, so to me, it's uh, I'll lay the blame for a lot of it at just not getting good instruction. Um, and particularly, you know, if uh, if someone is starting to go into that zone, 
the instruction to stop, stop practicing, you know, we're going to do, or do these other kinds of practices because this isn't working for you in this way. It's a really important thing. And, and if you, if you as a teacher uh, think there's, you know, only a certain path or that meditation is sacred in such a way that everyone should do it, or it's helpful to everyone always, especially in one form or another, that is the one right form, then that's going to be for sure damaging to students because lots of people have a kind of psychology that they need something different. So that's that. And then um, post stream entry or post like a big experience, um, there can be some, uh, that one's much easier to work with if someone's going into like a little DBDR or they feel like they, they don't like how oh, let's say maybe they're having a feeling of everything being kind of flat or a little, um, maybe uh, their, their joy of life doesn't seem to be there or whatever. That we can really, really work with because it's just they're missing. They haven't been pointed out what's good about it and what they can, how to use that in a way that is very positive and uh, uh, helps their affect, you know, helps them feel better. So to me, that one, you know, I've worked with at least one student who had like serious DPDR and uh, they ended up being able to dig themselves out of that hole because you can, it's, it's like, oh, you've actually got a kind of a deep awakening going there, but no one's pointed out to you how to use it is sort of the, the rough and ready description I would give. And so if you point that out, it starts working in the way it's classically supposed to. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, what about spiritual, um, if you like, ego? To use a very colloquial term. Sure. Um, well, that's a different kind of problem. <laughs> uh, and again, with a good teacher, they're going to cut that down right away, you know, just instantly slice through that um, and slice through it over and over and over again until the person either goes and finds another teacher who will tell them that they're wonderful or they figure out how to let go of that and see through it, see the emptiness of it, deconstruct it, etc. That one's that was the easiest thing to deal with. What are some of your slicing techniques? <laughs> Uh, it's uh, it's not hard to trigger someone just a little bit, just a tiny bit, and then go, see that right there? You know, I mean, you can do that in, in a classic, uh, you know, classic Asian spirituality way. You might do it in front of, in, a bun in public, in front of a bunch of other students and really embarrass them and point to it. That's a little bit, in my opinion, you know, it's a little bit mean, uh, but in one-on-one, -on -one, in a gentle way, you can do something like that and point to it and just say, you know, there's still some stuff to work on here. And then we move on. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I mean, if they're saying uh, I'm liberated in such a way that I will never get fixated or caught or triggered, uh, then, okay, well, let's find out. And so we find out <laughs> right away. Interesting. Well, let's uh, talk a bit about your your map, the stages of deconstructing sensory experiences, four stages, 
uh, as I mentioned, uh, which you run in two directions. And, 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 and at least initially, this was a map really designed to assist with Vipassana practice and to explain the sorts of stages or phases that one might go through um, doing that. And you said it, it sprang from or was, is an elaboration of the sorts of models that Shinzen Young, uh, our mutual teacher, in fact, uh, describes. So I'm curious about that, how you came to this map, how it evolved, and indeed, what is it? Yeah, so um, it's not that uh, different or unique. It is taking the stuff that I heard Shinzen say over years and years, and I just kind of arranged the puzzle pieces and um, added some levels and detail. Um, but it came about be because of just teaching so many people. And I realized um, kind of after the fact that I had a system that I was leading them through in terms of the depth of their Vipassana. And I recognized, oh, I'm actually have a, you know, stage thing going on in there. And so I just attempted to articulate it. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So that's, it's just totally practical based on, you know, um, how you're, where your Vipassana is at and what's the next thing you might want to try to do. So that's where it came from, um, working with people a lot. And so um, you asked me what it is, I'll just go into the you know basic description. There's four stages these days. Uh, the first of doing Vipassana, right? So this isn't really a map of shamatha. It's not like the mind illuminated or something where we're talking about how stable our concentration is. This is a map of Vipassana of sensory experience where we're essentially trying to uh, see emptiness. Um, of sensory experience. So stage one is where most people, not everyone, but most people start out. And that is you're actually meditating on the idea of the object instead of the object. And so this is of course quite common. Tell someone to meditate on their breath on the first day. They might feel their body moving a little bit, but mainly it's sort of like thinking about the breath. So it's like meditating on a concept. And then a big shift occurs when they really understand that the idea is not about the concept, but rather to get into the phenomenology of the experience. So instead of saying, I'm meditating on my breath, it's like, you know, this muscle is expanding here. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling contraction there. This part is warm. This part is cold. This part is um, uh, um moving in such a way and so on. So it's all phenomenological. So they would start to describe their experience as, okay, it's expanding, it's contracting, that feels kind of queasy, that part feels warm, that part is kind of got this energy flavor, stuff like that. They're gonna be um, giving you a phenomenological description and now they've got how to meditate, right? It's like, okay, now they can, their experience will start to get um, much deeper uh, right away, and the pleasure of meditating will start to arise. So that's the phenomenological level. That's a great place to be. And in in Western, in your typical Western vipassana, that's as far as it goes. Right, you just stay with the the phenomenology forever, um, and that that will only get you so far. If, however, and so I mentioned that this map is about Vipassana, but it of course requires concentration. 
Um, and so if your concentration goes up, so you're really, really noticing those qualities of, of a, I'm going to quote it now, object, a seeming object. At this point, they're seeming objects. Um, you're noticing each of those qualities. Let's say there's five qualities of an object. I'm just making this up. This is a toy example. But it's you know, warm versus cold, and it's big versus small, and it's circular versus, or it's a sphere versus a cube. And let's say it's, um, I like it versus I don't like it, and versus I don't like it. And it's, um, um, I don't know, what's another one? It's itchy versus smooth. Okay, so we've got these five qualities. And I've got a high enough concentration to be following those really fast, really deeply, really clearly. What am I going to notice? I'm going to notice that each of those qualities is continuously changing. The, 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 each of those qualities is continuously changing. And um, that's impermanence, right? Now we've got the, the impermanence quality, the, or in Shinzen speak, the flow quality, right? It's uh, the change becomes prominent. Instead of the qualities being prominent, the changingness of all the qualities becomes prominent. And it's really noticeable when that happens. You know, hearing someone talk about it, it's very noticeable. And that leads us to a much, much deeper form of Vipassana, where we're starting to notice the, uh, again, in Shinzen speak, the flow quality, the changingness. Now that's the impermanence way in, but of course you start seeing the other marks as well. Um, and um, there's, a, there's an interesting failure mode there that I see people run into a lot. And it's so important, I'll bring it up here, even though it's kind of a, a deeper point about specific parts of the model. But if you are the kind of person who's gotten very highly concentrated, you're used to concentrating on objects and they're getting clearer and sharper and clearer and sharper. And you love your retreats now because man, you go in there and the qualities get clearer and sharper and clearer and sharper on these objects. One day you're going to go into the best day of the retreat and suddenly it doesn't work. And it's like the object is mush. I can't, it turned to mush. And people get very upset and they try harder and try harder and try harder. And I've run into this so much in my own experience and other people's experience. Um, and of course, nothing has gone wrong. What's actually happening is your concentration went higher, not lower. Your concentration got better, not worse. And you started seeing the impermanence, emptiness, no self qualities of the object. So suddenly, instead of being an object, it's a pile of mush. That's called emptiness, my friend. And so, you know, you actually are getting a deep insight, but you're so, it's so different than what was happening before that it seems like some kind of fail. What's going on? Why can't I concentrate? And it's like, no, you're being asked to see that more deeply and the fact that the object is not an object. You've just learned that it's a continuously changing uh, vibratory flux phenomena and you now have to get used to that. So that's a big a big shift in meditation practice, Vipassana practice that um, really often happens. And it's, it's super important to understand that early mush where you can't concentrate at all uh, is different than this kind of like, suddenly the object is more like a fog bank or something. 
the nebulosity becomes prominent. So you've gone there, it's not even just impermanent, it's become nebulous, right? And so it's important to recognize that's a deeper stage at that point. So I'll just pause for a minute and drink some more PG tips, which I love. <laughs> what's the uh, what's the difference between those two kinds of mush? Perhaps you could concentration uh, level. Yeah, the first kind is very early on where you're just bad at concentrating. I mean, experientially. Well, experientially, they're similar enough that that's the problem because right. you think you reverted back. But the here's how you tell the difference is, you know, the last meditation before this happens was a whole series, was the last in a whole series of you getting sharper and clearer and sharper and clearer and more and more concentrated and sharper and clearer. So it wasn't a bunch of dullness and you weren't already kind of having problems. It's like you're getting better. You can just tell you're just on it and you're on it and you're on it. And then it goes that and it's like, oh, you just actually noticed something very deep about objects. So if it's you're ramping up, getting much more clear and sharper and more concentrated, and then it occurs right in that sequence, it's like, oh, okay, you, um, you're seeing the emptiness property. And if you then, if you get upset, you will start to revert, you know, because you're, you're going to try to find the, the phenomenological qualities as objects. And so now you're going to go back and try to sharpen it up. And that's actually um, den denying your own insight and knocking yourself back. And it's actually hard. It's very funny. It's hard for me to convince people that they went forward right there. But eventually I'm like, notice how your sense of being fixated or contracted around the object changes when it does that, when it starts to become more nebulous and diffuse. And does that feel good or bad when it does that? If, not about your meditation, but about your, you know, sort of um, a fixation on the object. And, you know, you, anyone will notice that they start to feel relief when the object starts to diffuse, right? Or become nebulous or be, be less sharp. There's a relief. There's openness. And it's like, yeah. That's how that, there's the other marker, you know, it's like, oh, you've gone deeper, your insight is deeper. So that's the third level of basically really getting into the change and eventually uh, the way I would describe it now, the emptiness. Mm. Um, and of course, that leads to the fourth level where emptiness is prominent. So instead of change being prominent, now emptiness is prominent. And in fact, you're starting to notice awareness itself rather than the object, it's awareness becomes the, the main thing. Otherwise, you know, the emptiness of the object being the fact that it's simply an arising in awareness. Now, as you uh, mentioned, the model used to have a fifth phase because if we are doing classic Vipassana, not Vipassana, and we're going down, 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 there's the possibility when you get into the emptiness that instead of going into the awareness part, you're gonna go into a cessation. And uh, that just makes sense in that downward sequence. There's two reasons I, I took it back out. One is that other things can happen there. It's not like the goal is a cessation the way I understand it and the way I teach it, even though that can happen there. 
Um, and that's the other, by the way, you know, rough and ready definition where we can start to talk about stream entry. If you're having cessations when, when you go down there, then you're gonna start being in stream entry territory. But it's not the only thing that can happen. And I don't even think it's the most important thing that can happen. So that's one reason I took it out of the map in the way I usually present it. I don't make it a fifth state anymore. And uh, that only lasted a week or something that I had it that way. Um, but also the much more important reason is the minute I put that in there, it's the only part of the map anyone wanted to talk about. Suddenly the conversation was dominated by let's talk about cessations. And, and I was like, no, that's not the purpose of this. So I'm just gonna remove that. So that's why the, the mythical fifth phase has been uh, removed from the usual uh, version of the map. I'll just pause again and let you speak. Mm, yes, wonderful, thank you. This process of uh, going from this narrative or conceptual stage through the phenomenological to the flow or, or movement change stage to the non-dual- vibration, yeah. To the non-dual or emptiness stage, as you've put it there, the emptiness stage with an object, uh, of course, Perhaps unintentionally, perhaps intentionally, the very same thing can occur to the meditator. <laughs> sure. I mean, if you're meditating on the sense of self, all that occurs, right? Yes. Or, or the self goes with the object in that sense. Could you perhaps say something about that, that uh, interesting case when that occurs? Yeah. That, I mean, it's basic non-dual philosophy. If the object starts to become empty, the observer becomes empty. And it works the other way around. If the observer becomes empty, the sub, the uh, object becomes empty. So you gotta, you need two things for a duality. And if either one of them starts to go to emptiness, the other will start to go to emptiness. So as you're, as you're seeing the emptiness of a quote object getting more and more um, clear than whether you realize it or not, you as the quote observer start becoming more and more nebulous. Um, uh, and if you're doing, uh, uh, I think, higher quality Vipassana, the teacher is going to be having you do your Vipassana on the sense of self specifically because then you're working both sides of the equation instead of looking at the breath and seeing the emptiness of it and hopefully getting emptiness of self out of that eventually. Why not work both sides of the equation at the same time and make the object the sense of self to begin with? And then you get like, you know, it will, I think, uh, happen much faster. Mm, interesting. Could you say something about how you might point someone to the self or the sense of self as <clears throat> the object? You know, I'm a shinhead, so I'll just be like, let's, what's your sense of self made of? It's going to be some emotions, and I, I'm not going to use shinzen language, but it's going to be some emotions and some thoughts. Uh, to, uh, and so let's start looking at the emptiness of thoughts. Let's start looking at the emptiness of emotions. Now, how about the emptiness of the sense of someone who's doing something? And we just keep, you know, someone who's meditating, someone who's judging the meditation, you know, the whole feed it back into itself. And so we just keep noticing aspects of the sense of self are empty and event you just can't help it. You're going to, you know, uh, have an awakening moment in there at some point if you do that enough. Awakening, not, not in the sense of like permanent liberation or something, but awakening to the sense or the, the recognition that the sense of self is empty. 
that's awakening. That's a moment of awakening. You might need thousands of those to start to really get somewhere in your practice, but that doesn't mean the first one isn't really important. And so, you know, seeing that emptiness of the sense of self very directly like that, um, it's a big deal, right? People, it's, it's a game changer. What's it like for you as a teacher when one of your students comes on comes into a call and i mean presumably there'll be a you you'll notice uh, the watershed has been crossed the that 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 one call to the next hmm, there's something there's, there's there's something here that's happened uh, sure. you, what's that like when you when you notice that what's your reaction inside well i anticipated your question and already answered it i said i love it of course it's wonderful and at the same time, you know, I recognize that's a big deal. And, but now the real work begins this is not the end of the work. Now we've really, we've got the basis for really doing some serious uh, meditative work. Mm. So it's both a wonderful moment that I celebrate. And at the same time, it's like, well, you might not want to hear this right now, but you know, you've, you've finally gotten in the door. So now we can begin in earnest. You know, you're reminding me of um, how I've seen Shinzen talk to people on retreats who report a significant experience, a meaningful experience to them anyway, um, that, you know, could be, could be in this sort of territory. Um, welcome to the club, he said, if I recall. That's right, yeah. And uh, yeah, but now the work now the work begins. Don't rest on your laurels. Now the work begins. It's something like this. Yeah, absolutely true. I've, I've seen him talk to people that way. Yeah, but it has both those elements: the celebratory aspect, the validating aspect, but also then the. We're going to get backwards. That, oh, well, go ahead. I, I was going to say I want to. I'm, I'm going in that direction that you're oh, going. Great. So I want to be clear that this way of talking is a pretty. Um, Vipassana, not Vipassana-based, sutric way of talking about getting to emptiness. You know, if you were to do this same sequence in a Mahamudra way or a Dzogchen way, you'd see those same things, but you'd get there differently, right? It's, it's um, you, it, you wouldn't be doing so much close concentration, right? It would be a different uh, way it would be described in a different way and we'd work with your meditation slightly differently and which is super fascinating how they're different um, so just to be clear I'm not saying everyone goes through these stages and I'm not even saying I would teach everyone in this way but for people who have let's say a lot of background in Vipassana or who are good at jhana or they've put a lot of time into TMI or something this is probably going to be the fastest way uh, for me to work with them because they've learned to concentrate in that manner. So <clears throat> something I noticed uh, just as a curiosity at first, and then it became much more interesting is that you can run this map backwards in quotes. It's not really exactly backwards, but, but it does work the other way around. And that is uh, typified by something like um, uh, a pointing out practice like Mahamudra or Zogchan, where you are pointed to that fourth state of empty emptiness right from the very beginning. And then, you know, you still may do a whole bunch of Vipassana. I'm going to use the other word now, Vipassana, where you're, you're 
from that knowledge of emptiness, beginning to notice the emptiness of, of um, a phenomena or noticing that all phenomena are rising in the mind or in awareness or whatever, you're going about it differently, right? Coming down. But eventually the point, even in those traditions, is to see the emptiness of everything. Um, but you, you've started out with a pointing out at that awareness space of emptiness to begin with, right? So you've got a view and you're working in a very different way with not so much close attention, but much more very wide open, vast awareness space and getting used to the idea that it does not take high concentration necessarily um, to see the emptiness of something. You know, you don't have to do like deconstructive microsurgery the way I've just described. Um, you can just kind of see it directly. That's an interesting phenomena and it's true uh, for a lot of people. It's more of a direct, oh, that's just a rising in awareness kind of uh, flavor. And so you can start there. There's even another way to start was really like uh, Shikantaza's Ogchen way where it's like, there's not even anything to, you know, you're already fully there just noticing. But of course, that's not even a map. So I, I have recognized that's there, but, um, and powerful and interesting and useful. And sometimes I teach that way, but uh, there's, that's not even a map, right? So we're gonna, we're just gonna leave that sort of instant awakening thing aside and say that if we want to reverse it, we, the simple thing is we start out with pointing to the, the awareness level, the empty level, and then we start to notice that everything's empty. Um, and what does that get you? It still gets you to that same place of um, you've pulled away from fixation on form and now emptiness seems prominent and form seems uh, less interesting. But we don't stop there. It's not, oh, good, I've left shitty, gross, disgusting samsara, and I'm in this, you know, pristine awareness, and that's it. Um, uh, no, we then very clearly start to say, well, here I've got this pristine, pure awareness. Notice what's happening in it. There's spontaneous presence, there's spontaneous display of phenomena arising in it continuously. Um, and that phenomena, even though it's empty, it's not useless or uninteresting or something. It's everything, right? The whole world is there as this um, uh, exquisite, vivid, bright, beautiful, scrumptious display that's arising in the awareness. And so we, re, we start to reaffirm the world really strongly as not just, you know, when you get, really get into the deep end of emptiness, it just starts to seem like everything is stupid and doesn't matter. And you're kind of, you feel good, but in sort of a flat affect way. Uh, and maybe everything starts to seem transparent and just, you know, and you can take that if you really start to kind of get into rejection mode of, of form, you can take it to a cessation because that's where that tries to go if you go all the way empty. Um, but if instead we reaffirm form, reaffirm uh, the, the exquisite arising, something different can happen, right? Where we re-engage, this is where I'm to 
what I'm calling coming back up the stack. We re-engage with form. And then eventually, as I was mentioning earlier, you recognize that it was never actually any different than the, the emptiness. That awareness isn't a thing. It doesn't arise independently. The two, the form and the emptiness arise together, right? And that's, now we're really, it's no longer transcendental. We're back in the world. And uh, if you wanna fully go there, you get into that tantric mood of like, let's even do that with all the really difficult, disgusting, painful, upsetting stuff. Notice that it's this exquisite arising in, in pristine awareness and that it, it's not different than pristine awareness. And now you're fully back in life, right? fully effortlessly back in, um, in a way in the place you started in that, like even in the conceptual realm, even ideas are just an effulgent display, right? So, but all of that wasn't just to come back to where you started. Of course, we are in a very, very, very different place uh, by the time we're seeing the inseparable pair of form and emptiness, you know, as this sacred world, this vivid display of um, um, groundless ground kind of thing. Fascinating. I'm I'm very curious. Does that make any sense to you? Yes, it yeah. it, it 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 does actually. Crystal clear. Thank you. Um, yes. I'm curious. You know, you've you've spanned really a quite quite a large territory um, there. In terms of the people that you're aware of, that that being said, I suppose your your colleagues and certainly your students. Um, the people you meet and so on, who, 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 you know, who you go through this map with or discuss it with and discuss practice with. What sort of, what's your sense of where people percentage, the distribution, I suppose, across, across this map or across this sort of territory? Do you have a sense of distribution? Um, oh, there's lots of people here or people, a lot of people get here and kind of, then they, this is a, this is a time when, uh, you know, they fall off of meditation, for example, or they, they bounce off or something. But do you have a sense of distribution of, of the population that you're exposed to? I don't, and I don't even want to have it. I would say that one thing, I, I to answer your question, at least partially, and I keep pointing to it, there's this urge when you're first learning to decouple with form and we've discovered deep emptiness, there can be an urge to stick there and to say, I just, all I want to do is go off in a cave and sit there forever and experience, experience the bliss of this uh, um, extinction. And that's totally understandable. If you've experienced the bliss of that extinction, you understand why someone would do that. And furthermore, there's a, a way that it really fits in with uh, especially Protestant Christianity, you know, that the world is kind of a sinful, dirty place. And there's, you know, this thing that's outside of the world that is pure and, and uh, um, sacred, and that the world is kind of a shithole. And so when you, it meshes even with our Western concepts in a way that can be, in my opinion, not very helpful. Again, if someone wants to go do that, I might hey, that's the meaning of your life for you, great, go do it. Um, but uh, I think a lot of people get stuck in that zone and don't move on. 
And that's not because it's the, uh, this is my arrogant opinion, not because it's the meaning of their life, but because they don't understand how to reintegrate the form and they don't even understand why they would want to do that. Um, and um, that's crucial. But, you know, I will end up hearing people start to say, you know, just start to reify awareness, reify the emptiness and make it the one true, real, sacred thing and kind of more and more negate the world. And I, the stronger they do that, uh, as a teacher, the stronger I will push against it and just say, well, really? You know, and so we start to work with form. So what I see is a lot of very heavy duty meditators who are quite good practitioners getting kind of stuck, in my opinion, stuck in that place. Stuck in the emptiness hole. What What's the way out? What are the ways out of the emptiness hole? Let's say you have a meditator accomplished, you know, relatively accomplished really in this territory, as you said, and you know, doesn't see any reason, uh, doesn't, but they don't, maybe they know how to get out of the dome, but they don't see why they should. They're just quite comfortable there. Um, what, um, what's the case for getting out of there any, in the first place? And what are the means to get out of there as you, that you would typically deploy? Well, the case for getting out of there is, you know, um, uh, do you have nothing else to do with your life? That's what I say. If, if really the meaning for them, the meaning of the rest of their life is to sit like that and they feel that way, I, in a very strong sense, and I can tell they're being genuine, I will say, go do that. But do it for real. You know, I mean, you, if you're really going to go there, uh, just go to a monastery and do it. But, and, and typically, I would say, I don't have hundreds of examples so but the few examples i have eventually they will see that that's not where they want to spend the rest of their life and come back out and then want to understand how to re-engage and then the process begins but that's one kind of person another kind of person who starts to talk in that way um, i will just point out gently or firmly hey you're kind of attached to that experience hey, you're kind of reifying that experience. Hey, are you sure that's really the, you know, the deepest view? And we can start dialoguing there and start to um, um, notice what actually does evoke interest, what actually is you know, about form that might be still compelling <clears throat> and and begin to uh, just slowly bring them back from there. It's not hard once, once if I say as a meditation challenge, I want you to now let the form re-arise, they can do that. They don't wanna do it. And that's already interesting. And I'm like, okay, so there you go. See, there's a thing we're avoiding here. Let's start to let the form re-arise and see how it's different now than it was before. And then immediately, you know, it starts to be fun. It starts to be interesting. And, and there's this moment where it's like, oh, the world that I was utterly rejecting is actually, uh, you know, and I'll just go through my list again. It's exquisite, it's effulgent, it's vivid, it's playful, it's spontaneous, it's interesting, even the difficult parts. 
And that's when you recognize that that kind of like sailing off on the seas of total emptiness forever is an avoidance strategy, as far as I'm concerned. And so now you're avoiding with something that is about as wonderful and healthy and deep and powerful as it could be. I mean, it's almost uniformly positive. It's not like avoidance with a drug or something, but still it's like, hey, notice that, that there's a whole world here that if, if, you're, if you're really liberated, won't, won't be a problem, right? That you can engage with. And um, <clears throat> you might want to do that. So that's, I don't know, that's how I would approach it. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Thank you. Especially if you understand the emptiness of objects, it doesn't mean they're not there. You know, they're just empty. And so they're empty, they're spontaneous display. And so uh, how can a spontaneous display ever, ever actually be a problem? You know, and questions like that, and they'll start to go, well, let's see, let's see if I can let the form re-arise as display, and is it actually a problem, or is it um, part of the part of the, the primordial purity? It's sort of irresistible, and it just starts to pull you back in in a really different way than, you know, the, the previous fixated manner. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you. I wonder if you might, you've said, you've, used, you've said it a couple of times, disambiguate the difference between Vipassana and Vipassana as you've been using them. Well, you know the deal, like these words are, um, uh, so one, uh, just the literal difference, Vipassana is Pali language and Vipassana is Sanskrit language. They essentially mean the same thing outside of a Buddhist context would be, they would mean something like see clearly. Okay, it's just normal language to see something clearly or to see it distinctly. Um, so the, the, the literal denotative difference is just the same word in two different languages, related languages, vipassana and vipassana. Um, but of course, when we use Pali, we're talking about early Buddhism, that kind of vipassana is always going to be deconstructive. And you're going to be seeing the, you're going to be specifically trying to see the three marks. Um, or maybe uh, the, uh, the um, 12-fold, 12-fold change of dependent co-arising. But um, notice how that's different than just being with it, which we hear a lot in kind of everyday Vipassana. We're not just being with it. We're specifically trying to see certain properties it's impermanence, it's no self quality and so on. That's the pasana, the way I mean it. It's deconstructive microsurgery. Um, whereas when we say, when I say the pasana, I'm moving to much later Buddhism and saying just seeing the emptiness, however you do that. But we're going for emptiness, emptiness, emptiness. So that's why I'm using those terms that way. Great. Um, if you, and for me, it's not like uh, they're not, um, they can work together. If you have trouble seeing, if I have a student who has trouble understanding emptiness, seeing emptiness, I'll just back them up into deconstructive Vipassana 
until they get a taste of emptiness and then we'll switch back to emptiness. So they can work together really well. It's not like they're somehow so ideolo ideologically opposed that they can never live under the same roof or something without getting in a fight. <laughs> yeah, thank you for, for clarifying that. Um, can I do a quick fire round with you, Michael? Oh yeah. Quick fire round, okay. A quick what round? Quick fire. Quick fire, okay. I don't know what that is, but. It's when I ask you uh, short questions and you answer in a sort of immediate fashion. Now, you, that, that bit's optional. I would just ask you pithy questions in a, in a quick way, but you can answer longer if you need to, so you don't have to. Okay. So um, uh, let's, just, let's just use this last topic as our beginning. Wet or dry Vipassana? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> they both work. They're both interesting. Uh, different students use different ones. And I, I haven't used those terms in so many years in a way that matters to me that that's why I was like, no comment. It's sort of, a, um, uh, I'm good either way. Okay. Hard or soft, Jana? Um, softer. Hard Jana, I, I think, um, is, is only available to people with certain physiologies and so forth. Like really, really, really super deep Vishuddhi Maga type jhanas. Not everyone can do that, no matter how much they meditate. And I don't think it's actually desirable for most people. It doesn't lead to potentially um, where they want to get. Whereas soft or medium level jhanas are, you know, if you if you like that and you've learned to do that, um, that's incredibly effective. Breath as object or fire casino. <laughs> uh, any any quote object as object works for me. Every 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 person um, uh, has a, has a different object that works for them, and so I do like fire casino a lot. Um, that's a fun object, but and I, I I also like it because the kind of idea that the breath is the only object is ridiculous. Um, and in fact, if we were doing again something like Mahamudra or Zogchen, um, especially Mahamudra, we would start out with a visual object, like a rock, and then go to visualization objects, which are closer to casinos. And, and so it's actually much more traditional uh, in later Buddhism to use a visual object than the breath. So to me, that's fascinating. I like visual objects a lot. A lot, of, a lot of just plain shamatha for me would be, you know, some kind of visualization. Here's a niche one. Body image talk or see, hear, feel? Well, you got to do both. <laughs> oh, no, you meant, um, yeah, okay. I like the early Shenzhen labels much better. And uh, we even debated at one point when he was switching to the new labels. I told him why I didn't like them. And I've never gotten on board with the new labels. Of course, I can use them fluently, but I just don't like how they sound. And I don't like how you end up... Uh, speaking sentences like then a here in a rose and things like it's just ugly english and so i think i would rather say you know then a um you know some mental talk arose which is already nerdy enough but at least it still sounds like you know an english sentence yeah, very cool yeah we're of course to give a little bit of context there shinzen young our mutual uh, meditation teacher famous for iterating and iterating his own uh systems 
and uh, renaming them and uh, recategorizing things, much to the uh, delight or consternation, depending on, I think, the personality type and also um, uh, the, the particular update, <laughs> uh, you know, to, of the students. Yeah, so uh, I think of myself as a core a Shenzhen student because I keep changing my maps. <laughs> yes, in that sense, the uh, apple has not fallen far from the tree. Well, Michael, this has been uh, so fun. Thank you very much for coming back a second time on the podcast. Um, yeah. Is there anything uh, left to say anything else you want to add before we finish today? Oh, just that, you know, if we were really talking about non-dual meditation, I was talking it in the sense of how the stack reverses. We could really describe it in, a, you know, a totally different way to get more into kind of the mood of a typical non-dual tradition. The way I run the map forward and backwards is still kind of coming from that early perspective. And like I say, we would, we'd, we'd unpack it differently and go about it differently. And that that's also fascinating. Doesn't mean it do, the map doesn't apply, but um, but I just want to recognize that there's there's other ways to unpack that. That's all. Other than that, thank you so much. I love your questions. It's really fun to sit here and, and geek out with you about this. So mm -hmm. yeah, I hope it's... Uh, people enjoy it. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been very enjoyable. Michael Taft, thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. Have a great one, man. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.